In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Thank you all for uh, getting up a little early being here. Um, hey, if we haven't met, uh, my name is Ben Wishall. I serve, uh, serve as an elder here at ICON. Um, before I jump in, one, one piece of business. So as I prepared for this message, there were lots of resources that I read and listened to. Um, a lot of wise preachers and teachers that have a lot more wisdom than I do. Um, other than one direct quote I'm going to have on the screen, the words of this sermon are uniquely mine. However, I'm borrowing a lot of themes and ideas um, from, from three men in particular. I just want to, to give, give proper credit. So um, one of the great things about laboring as a Christian is that we get to stand on the shoulders of everyone that's come before us. Um, so this morning, we're going to be standing on the shoulders of, of D.A. Carson, John Piper, and R.C. Sproul in particular. So um, if you were here last May, uh, you might remember... A message I gave on King Uzziah, um, so kind of this intro to this passage in the year that King Uzziah died, and then we went to Second Chronicles 26, talked about who he was. Um, so today is kind of a part two of that sermon from, from 10 months ago. Um, I didn't look it up, but that might be a Guinness record for longest time elapsed between parts one and two. We'll see. Um, yeah, so as Dara read for us, so just to kind of recap, in the year that King Uzziah died, right? King Uzziah was one of the greatest kings in the history of Israel. Um, not quite like David Solomon, but if we're talking like Mount Rushmore of, of kings, he's definitely in the conversation. Um, he was known king at, at, at age of 16, ruled the southern kingdom of Israel for 52 years. Um, under his reign, the walls of Jerusalem, which had been destroyed during his father's reign, he rebuilt, fortified, added war machines, expanded the borders of his kingdom, um, pushed back their enemies, established outposts in, in uh, enemy territory. Um, his economy thrived, his citizens thrived, as one of the wealthiest and safest places in the world during his reign. More than 40 years, there was peace, wealth, opportunity, flourishing, until one day Uzziah grew proud. He went to the temple um, with the intent of burning incense on the altar of incense, which is a job very specifically reserved for the priests, not for the king. In doing that, he was trying to go around God's design for the forgiveness and holiness of his people, stepping into the place of mediator between God and man, that place reserved for the priests and ultimately, ultimately Jesus, and God immediately struck him with leprosy in that moment. He had reigned faithfully for over four decades, and in a moment of weakness, 
arrogance, pride. He violated the law and holiness of God and failed every person he was responsible to lead, right? Lived out the remainder of his life in isolation. He had to rule through surrogate leaders until the day of his death, right? It's very, very weird and awkward, right? Can, can you feel that, right? Feel the pain, that uncertainty, kind of, kind of the, the, the gut punch, right? Life was good. It had been good. There wasn't this, like, slow fade, um, which they had seen with Uzziah's father. There's kind of this slow fade. He brought idols in, started worshiping other things until finally, um, finally he, he was killed. Everything was great until it wasn't. Just this, all of a sudden, one day, it just wasn't overnight. So it's in that place of uncertainty and pain that we have this encounter in Isaiah, right? Isaiah was the prophet of Israel at the time. His job was to be the mouthpiece of God to the people. The Holy Spirit would give him divine words. He would speak them out and communicate those messages. So imagine the weight of responsibility he's carrying, right? The kingdom, 52 years, all of a sudden their king's gone. They're looking to Isaiah, hey, what, what does God have for us now? What, what do we do? What's next? All right. God knows that. He knows what the people are feeling. He knows the complex emotions of all of these people. He knows the weight that Isaiah's carrying as a leader. And, and then we have this encounter. Here's how God meets his people and how God meets Isaiah in this place. And that's what we're going to dive into today. Let's pray before we go on. Um, Lord, thank you, for, thank you for your word. Thank you for the the stories that we have from years and years ago that we get to, to read and remember and talk about and see how you have shown up for your people time after time after time. Thank you for um, the power that you have and the love that you have to continue to show up time after time after time. Lord, and as we dive into this, as we read how you met Isaiah, how you met your kingdom, your people in this place of pain, of uncertainty, um, Lord, just ask that, that you will speak to every one of us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So I'm going to uh, read, read from Isaiah again. And we're going to be, I'm going to kind of reread this a lot. So if you've got it open, probably just stay there because we're going to kind of go just through phrase by phrase, so to speak. So Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Um, we talk about the holiness of God a lot, but we don't often take the time to really, really define what it means. Um, John Piper has a definition of holy that's very helpful. We have a, have a quote, actually, that we can throw up here on the screen. Um, the, the root meaning of the word holy is to cut off or to separate from. A holy thing is cut off from something to be devoted to something else. The holiness of it consists of being not part of the common, not part of the profane, not part of the impure. It's devoted unto God. Okay, so the idea of being holy is to be separate from the common things of this earth in order to be devoted unto God. There's a, there's a, a separate and other piece 
of holiness. Okay, so again, remember our setting in Isaiah 6, right? King Uzziah has died. Isaiah has gone up to the temple, and then he has this encounter, okay? God could have brought Isaiah a message of confidence in whoever the incoming king, whoever, whichever of Uzziah's sons was, was the next person up, right? He could have given him a preview. Um, Isaiah was a prophet. Hey, go tell the people this is what's going to happen. He could have, have done all of those things, but he doesn't. In fact, he doesn't even speak in this encounter. The, there is so much uncertainty, there's so much pain, and God knows exactly what his people need at this specific moment in time, and it's not clarity about the future, it's not some sort of word, they just need him to know him more deeply, to see him more clearly, right? So what he does in the midst of this crisis is to go and to meet Isaiah at the temple and peel back the curtain between heaven and earth and invite him into his throne room. In that first phrase, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Okay. Now, there are two Hebrew names for God in the Bible that we translate into the English word Lord. Right? One is Yahweh, and the other is, is Adonai. Um, and if you look closely at your Bible, actually, you can see what, what the translators have done for us. If you see the, uh, the word Lord spelled capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's the name Yahweh. What we have here in verse 1 is capital L, lowercase O-R-D. That's the name Adonai. So in a way that they're kind of helping us figure that out. The idea of Yahweh, Yahweh is, is the summation of who God is. It's every aspect of his character, his holiness, his might, everything about who he is. That name was actually, they revered it so much that the high priest was only allowed to speak it once a year when he went into the Holy of Holies. Um, the actual true English spelling would be Y-H-W-H. So we actually, don't even, we actually don't even know how it's pronounced. We, we say Yahweh because that's kind of what makes sense. There are some, uh, some scholars that think it might even be a three-syllable name. But that, that name, they felt like God's name was so holy they wouldn't even speak it. It's, it was just written out. So oftentimes what they would do is they would use the name Adonai because they felt like, okay, that's, that's one that we can say. We're okay. <laughs> um, Adonai, and Isaiah specifically used it here in verse 1 because Adonai means sovereign ruler or sovereign one. So plugging that in, okay, in the year that our sovereign ruler Uzziah died, I saw Adonai, the sovereign ruler, sitting upon a throne. When our ruler tried to put himself in the place of the priest, in the place of Christ, defiling God's holiness, breaking the law of God, betraying all of us, I saw Adonai sitting on the throne. He wasn't in a band. He wasn't running to and fro looking for the next king. He was sitting where he always had been, ruling and reigning. Then notice what Isaiah tells us about this throne too. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Okay, so if we could go back through all of history, take every throne of every king, queen, every office, we were president and prime minister and spread about in a huge field, side by side, right? What, what would we see? It'd be a huge array. We would see some simple chairs carved out of stone, built out of wood. You'd have some really ornate seats inlaid with gold and jewels, raised up on a dais, kind of above the people around them. You know, more modern, we'd have small offices tucked into corners of, of war-torn buildings, large oval offices in, in big white houses, right? You could recognize 
the status, the wealth, the power, the prestige of every ruler of every kingdom and country that ever was, is, and will be. Right? You could pick out, oh, there's David, there's Solomon, there's Uzziah, right? And then imagine we're in this field and the sun comes out, burns away the fog, the clouds are parting, and you realize there's something up above. You start to look around, oh, there's, there's a foot in that corner, and there's a foot in that corner, and that one, and that one, and up above is this massive throne towering above all of them, like Mount Rainier towering above our city, right? Seated upon that throne, upon the throne, is Adonai, above every other ruler that ever has been. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Um, how many people remember 2011 Prince William and Kate Middleton's wedding? Anybody? A few? Okay. Um, I, have, I have exactly one distinct memory of that wedding. Um, they got married about three weeks before I did, so I would not have known what was going on or even cared about it except... My wife was enthralled with this fairy tale story of the commoner meeting the prince and then falling in love. And so I was like, okay, I need, I need to pay enough attention. I'm marrying this woman. I should probably care what she cares about, right? She's in kids today. It's all right. <laughs> um, on the day of their wedding, we were hanging out. She was watching the live stream online. I was kind of halfway pretending to watch. Um, but there was a moment I remember really, really distinctly that, that, that drew me in. Um, as Kate and her father were walking down the aisle, in Westminster Abbey, there was this overhead shot, and we have, have a picture of this as well. Um, they're waiting, waiting for William, waiting to meet the father of the bride, and you can see her train, right, just flowing behind her. Um, I actually grabbed that, that was a still of a, of a YouTube video, and there was, there was like three people like arranged and organizing it for a good minute and a half to get it all perfect for that picture. Um, I looked it up, that train is over eight feet long on that dress. Um, so, the train of a garment, right, in Isaiah's time, in our time, it, it communicates something about the status of the person wearing it, right? Um, power, importance, magnificence. Um, it's kind of the only purpose of a train of a garment, right? Um, the longer it gets, you have to have a person or even multiple people. We have a second picture. Um, their entire job is to hold it, right? That's, that's Kate's sister, Pippa. Her job was to walk eight feet behind and hold the bottom of the back of her dress to make sure it didn't get dirty. <laughs> Um, in 2011, that dress cost 250,000 pounds to make. Um, exchange rate at the time, it's about $400,000. So then you throw in 12 years of inflation, it's over half a million. So they spent over half a million dollars in today's money to make a single garment for a single wedding for a couple hours. Okay. Isaiah says that the train of God's robe filled the temple. Okay, so imagine that with me, okay? He's sitting on his throne, the train of his robe is coming down, and it's over the instruments, it's over the stage, it's flowing down, not just covering you guys, but totally engulfing. It's in every corner, and it's so voluminous, it's up into the balcony, right? It absolutely, completely, totally fills everything. The royal family spent half a million dollars on a dress with an eight-foot train. How? Magnificent and important and valuable and worthy of everything is, is the God wearing the robe that fills the temple, right? How majestic must that have been? All right, all right. Deep breath, 
That was four pages and with three verse one. <laughs> uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Okay, so Isaiah continues to take in the throne room. He sees this around him, and he sees the seraphim, this, this very specific type of angel. Um, and he describes their posture. I think that, that's important. The, this is really the only, there aren't a lot of places we see seraphim described, but he describes their posture. He says they're covering their eyes and their feet. Okay, these, these are, are sinless angels, right? They're created, but they're sinless. They're in the presence of God. Their job is to be in the holiness of God, proclaiming his name. In God's presence, they can't even look at him. They can't even look at his holiness on full display. They have to cover their eyes. It is so powerful and so radiant. They, as created beings, cannot even look directly at him. And they also cover their feet because they recognize even though they're flying, the place they're standing is, is holy ground, right? Exodus chapter 3, Moses encounters the burning bush, and God tells him to stop and take his shoes off because God's presence is there. That place is holy ground. The seraphim recognize what the, who they are in the presence of, and their posture shows us how we should react as well. And as they're flying around, they're singing a song together. It says, calling back and forth. So verse 3, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. All right? And this Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, this is... Yahweh. Now they are using the full name. So Adonai is on the throne, and he is also holy Yahweh. And they repeat holy three times. That's, that's very significant. In ancient Jewish culture, they had a device they would use, repetition, to communicate special importance, right? So like what we do with underlines, boldface, font, italics, that type of thing, to really emphasize something, um, as uh, Jewish rabbis especially were teaching, if they had something that was really, really important, they would say it twice. They would emphasize. Um, we see that a lot with Jesus, right? When he's talking to his disciples, you'll read, truly, truly, I say to you. Um, depending on the translation you have, some of the older ones say, verily, verily, or most assuredly, most truly. Right? Regardless of the English translation, what we have in, in the Bible when that happens is the words that Jesus spoke in Hebrew were amen, amen, or amen, amen. When we agree with something, when we want to call attention to something, we kind of close with amen. Right? When Jesus wanted to call attention to something, he would open by saying amen, amen. Listen up, this is more important than other things. Right? The book of John tells us that if, if all of the words that were written about what Jesus did, could, the books would fill the earth. If all of the so in all of those teachings and all of what we don't have and all of what we do have, there are a handful of times when Jesus would say, hey, listen up, this is super important. And he would say it twice. When the seraphim speak of the holiness of God, they say it three times. There is no other attribute of God. There is no teaching, nothing that Jesus said, no characteristic of God that is repeated three times. Only holiness. There's only one other place in all of the Bible where we see something repeated three times. It's Revelation chapter 4, when John is given a vision of the throne room of God, and the angels are calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So the Bible twice emphasizes for us the holiness of God, and then again emphasizes that three times. Right? God is thrice holy. He is not 
Love, love, love. He's not just, just, just. Wrath, wrath, wrath. Eternal. He is holy, holy, holy. So if we think about our definition of holy from John Piper, the holiness of something consists of it being not part of the common, the profane, the impure. It is separate. It is other, so that it can be wholly devoted to something else. Okay, so if, if to be holy once is to be separate from the profane and impure, to be holy, 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 that is so completely and utterly cut off from anything that has even the faintest whiff of impurity. Right? That's why the seraphim covered their feet, their, their creatureliness. They couldn't even, in the presence of the holy, holy, holiness, they had to cover their feet. If there's a single word that encapsulates who God is, right, it would be holy. That's, it's, his holiness is his godness. Right? He's other, he's separate. He created everything with a simple spoken word, but he himself is not created. We are utterly dependent on him upholding the universe. He is utterly dependent on no one but himself. Okay? That is that, that separation, that cut off, that holy nature of God. Right? We're here the mountains, the rivers, the oceans, the earth, the moon, the galaxies, time itself, and then God is here. All right, so there's two pieces to our definition of holiness, to be cut off from one, to be devoted to the other. All right, so for us, to cut off from our sinful nature, to be devoted to God. For God, it would be to be cut off, to be more devoted to himself, Right? In Ephesians 4, so 17, and I'm just kind of, kind of chunking out a little bit. This I say and testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Right? We're taught what it means to be holy. We hear what it is. We pursue obedience to Christ, we have to, we have to learn what it means to walk in holiness, right? God didn't have to learn how to be holy. That's the essence of his nature. It's just who he is, right? We obey his law in our pursuit of being more like him, in our pursuit of walking in holiness. He created the law, right? God isn't holy because he's keeping the law. The law is holy because it reveals who God is. Song of the Seraphim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Right? So the second half of that song describes for us how God reveals his holiness to us. Right? It's full of his glory. They don't say that the earth is full of his holiness. Right? They use the word glory. Holiness is the unfiltered, full essence of who God is. If the earth was full of his holiness, we wouldn't be able to look at the earth. Right? Like the seraphim couldn't look at God. And so the, the glimpse that we get, the taste that we get of God's holiness on earth is what we call his glory. Uh, there's a, a religious belief, a, a false teaching that, that we use described with the word deism. Uh, deism is this idea that there is this supreme, holy, other being, this creator that kind of created everything, set it in motion, and then said, all right, good luck, hands off. Um, when we truly understand, right, as, as we talk about this holiness, we could kind of see where that idea would come from. But the seraphim here, they immediately follow, hey, the, the earth is full of his glory. They don't leave us in this place of God is holy, holy, holy. They say, hey, the earth is full of his glory. And for that to happen, God would have to be present. 
right? First Samuel 4, we, we read a story of the Israelites losing the battle to the Philistines at Shiloh. The Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. If you aren't familiar with that, the Ark was where, as the Israelites traveled around, the Ark was where God's uh, spirit would dwell with them as, as they traveled. And the Philistines take it. Uh, that chapter, First Samuel 4, closes with, The glory has departed of Israel, for the Ark of God has been captured. The presence of God was, was taken. Um, Psalm 78 actually talks about this specific moment in, in the history of Israel. Verses 59 through 61, when God heard, so he, they had abandoned God in favor of worshiping idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, so he pulled himself away. The tent where he dwelt among mankind delivered his power to captivity and his glory to the hand of the foe. God pulled away, and with it, his glory as well. So for the seraphim to say the earth is full of his glory, you can't have the glory of God without the presence of God, right? That's why we say deism is... Is, is a false idea of this separate other God that has just stepped back. He is holy, he is separate, he is other, but he also fills the world with his presence, fills the world with his glory. Okay, Our earthly leaders are going to fall short. They're going to sin. Adonai, the sovereign one, never fails, never falls short. He is holy, 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 and he doesn't leave us to our own devices to deal with the shortcomings of our world and ourselves. The Hebrew word for glory is, is kabahada. When I was reading the definitions, these are some of the other words that were thrown in there. Abundance, riches, honor, splendor, dignity, reputation of character, reverence, magnificence. The earth is full of the reputa- reputation of God's character. It's full of his magnificence. The earth is full of the abundance of his riches and glory. Let's try, and be, let's try and be Isaiah here for a moment. You're standing in the temple. You're looking up at this throne. The, the train of God's robe is, is around you and over you and covering you, and, and you hear the seraphim singing back and forth this song, right? And then Isaiah starts to feel something. Okay, verse 4, The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. There's a, a physical reaction happening around him in response to the holiness of God. Um, some translations, again, instead of, instead of the foundation of the threshold, they might say the foundation of the doorposts or the doorways. Um, regardless, the idea is that stuff's shaking. Okay? Um, as I've gotten older, this is actually my favorite part of this whole passage because it speaks to me at a professional level. Um, I work in commercial construction. I'm what's considered a, a specialty contractor because I am, uh, specifically work with one thing uh, as opposed to a general that does everything. And my specialty is Doors. So if he's saying doorposts, doorways, thresholds, I'm like, yeah, this is my world. This, this, this is where I live. Um, I've been doing, doing that for a little over 11 years now, and so there's, there's, like, there's people in the door industry, there's people that enjoy it, and then there's me. Uh, one, of my, one of my colleagues tells me that I put the door in dork. So, um, <laughs> so full, um, on full display, here we go. Um, a lot of us have an idea or definition when we hear the word, word threshold, right? You're standing at the threshold of something, kind of at the cusp of this big change. Um, in construction, there's a literal physical thing called the threshold. We got a picture of one. Um, if you're a Microsoft person, that is Cafe 16. <laughs> um, the physical threshold is that plate that covers the transition between the inside and the outside of a building. Okay. Um, 
as the building ages, ground moves, settles, the screws will pull up, those things will get loose. You may have, if you think about it, if, as you walk into a building, step on something, you hear kind of a metallic clink, and oh, that's the threshold coming loose. Pretty common thing. Um, Isaiah doesn't say that the threshold was shaking, that the threshold was loose. He says the foundation of the threshold was shaking. That's a lot more than just, just a loose screw. Okay? The foundation of the threshold is the wall that's underneath it. It's the part of the structure that that thing is anchored to. Okay? If we're talking the exterior of a building, this is the perimeter wall that separates outside from inside. You've got dirt and bugs and water and all of the things that can really destroy a building, and you have the foundation of the threshold holding all of that back, pushing it all away. Those walls are they're sunk into the ground. They're in, in modern construction, reinforced with rebar and all kinds of things. They're load-bearing. They go corner to corner. They kind of come up to doorways and go around and then hold up ceilings. Um, foundations have to be solid, right? They've got to be secure. You have to be able to withstand tremendous abuse, weight. That's why the West Seattle Bridge was closed for two years, because there was damage to the threshold. Um, okay. We've all been inside like an older building or a, a cheaply constructed building that kind of shakes and rattles, right? You slam a door and pictures rattle and uh, a train goes by and all the lights start to shake, whatever. Not a big deal. Um, the foundation of the threshold shaking, there's only one thing that can cause that, right? That building is, is solid, it's secure, it's sunk into the ground. For the foundation to shake, that means the earth is shaking. Okay, so when Isaiah says the foundation of the threshold is shaking, he's describing an earthquake. The entire earth was moving and shaking at the song of the seraphim. Now, I, their voices are loud and powerful. I think it's more than just how strong their voices were, right? In this moment, the veil between physical and spiritual has been pulled back. The full holiness of God is on display on earth, not just his glory. Right? Jesus tells us in Luke 19 that his, if his disciples had been quiet about who he was, the rocks would cry out. The, the very physical earth is trembling in awe at the holiness of God. Right? It's remembering before the fall. God created everything and it was very good and then sin came. It's longing for that day when Christ is going to return. It's witnessing the holiness of God. The earth, the rocks, the dirt is shaking and trembling at the holiness of God. And Isaiah realizes who he is in this moment. And I said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The idea of woe we see throughout Scripture. Um, Jesus proclaims woe on the Pharisees. Isaiah himself, actually, in, in chapter 5, right before this, is proclaiming woe on all of the unfaithful people in Israel. Um, the idea of woe is the opposite of the idea of blessing. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, blessed are the, we call that the Beatitudes, right? And he goes through all of this list. Woe is the idea of condemnation. It's the complete opposite of that. So what Isaiah says here, when he sees the, the holiness of God, he says, I am damned. Woe is me. I've seen the king. I've seen the Lord. And the one thing about himself that he points to, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Remember his job? If there was anything about Isaiah that he could stand on and say, this, this is why I'm okay, this is why I'm worthy, it's because God chose me to be his mouthpiece. God chose me to speak 
to his people. God chose me to receive his divine words and speak. If there was one thing about Isaiah that would have made him okay in the presence of God, it would have been his lips. And in this moment, when he sees the distance, he sees the other, he sees what he is, he says, I, I stand in damnation because my lips are unclean. The best thing about himself condemns him. What does God do for him in this moment? Again, God still has not spoken a word. Does he leave him there? Does he leave him in his despair? No, of course not. Verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Isaiah could do nothing about the divide that's between him and God. His sinfulness and God's holiness, all he could do was look at the gap, recognize his sin. God doesn't leave him there. He sends the seraphim down, right? God bridges the gap for him. And it says the seraphim took a live coal from the altar, right? Has anybody ever grilled the correct way using charcoal, not propane? I'm a Midwest boy. I think charcoal is the way to go. That's just how it is. Um, when you grill correctly, you start your fire about 30 to 45 minutes before you start cooking, right? You got to make sure that, that the charcoal is heated and ready to make sure your meat can get cooked properly, right? Propane, you turn it on, you cook, and you're done. All right, it's lazy. Uh, <laughs> um, when you're cooking with charcoal, you don't want a big flame like, like you have to have with propane because if you have a big flame, it means that the coals aren't even hot yet. You want those coals to be white hot. You want the flames to have died down, and you got this nice, if the lights, if it's dark outside, and you've got this kind of like glowing orange white, that's when they're ready. That's when you know they are hot, right? It takes time. It takes planning. It takes effort to cultivate it and prepare it properly to not introduce too much oxygen, have it burn out too fast, or have too little so it, so it kind of suffocates itself, right? It takes work. It takes effort. It takes time. God knew before Isaiah set foot in the temple before he peeled back the curtain, that Isaiah was going to come to this place and that he needed a sacrifice. It doesn't say the seraphim came down and stoked up the fire, hung out for 30 minutes, kind of waited for it. No, it says he went to the fire that was ready and he pulled the coal that was already hot, the fire that had been cultivated and built. God had the sacrifice waiting for Isaiah. He knew what he needed before he came. He moved towards him in love, right? He sent the seraphim down. This, this is a picture, right? This is a foreshadowing of what Christ is going to do on the cross, right? Christ coming down, descending. But it's more than just a foreshadowing. This, in John chapter 1, we read Jesus was, was in the beginning with God, right? He is and he was God. In Genesis, God says, let us make, talking about the Trinity, the conversation of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all talking together, right? Colossians describe Jesus as the visible image of the invisible God. In John 12, 41, John actually writes about this specific event. And, and he says that uh, Isaiah wrote and spoke about the glory of Christ because he saw him. So as God pulls back the curtain of heaven and as he looks up at the throne, Isaiah sees Jesus. Jesus is the one sitting on the throne. Jesus is Adonai. Jesus is Yahweh. When Isaiah saw the train of the robe that filled the temple, the king that was wearing that robe, that was Jesus. As he listened to the song of the seraphim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. They were singing about Jesus. 
when Isaiah saw his helplessness, as we see our helplessness, Jesus sent the seraphim down to the altar, foreshadowing what he himself was going to do for all of us. Okay. For Isaiah, they sent the ser- he sent the seraphim down. Right? Family, for us, when we look up at Adonai, he is the one that stepped off the throne. He is the one that left that behind. He is the one that bridges the gap. He is the one that went to the cross. When, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying before he was to be sacrificed, he said, Father, if it's, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Talking about the cup of wrath to be poured out on sin because Jesus knew the holiness of God. Jesus knew because it, it's him on the throne. When he stepped away from that, he knew what he was stepping away from. He knew he was stepping into, he was stepping into his own wrath. He was stepping into his own righteous judgment for sin. He was stepping into all of those things for us. Because he knew, he knows the gap that is there. He knows what holiness is. He knows how other and separate and far off he may seem. And he says, I'm not going to leave you there. I'm not going to leave you there. I'm not going to leave Isaiah there. I'm not going to leave you there staring at this massive chasm and not sure what to do. I'm going to step off the throne. I'm going to walk among you. I'm going to stub my toe. I'm going to smack my hand. I'm going to be hungry and thirsty and tired. I'm going to be tempted. I'm going to leave all of that behind. And then I'm going to take this wrath. I'm going to pour it on myself. For you, I will leave my place in heaven. For you, I will break fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so that you can have fellowship. Our King Adonai is high. He's mighty. He's lifted up. He is separate. He is holy, holy, holy. He is everything that our world is not. And that is the best news that we can hear because he is also kind and compassionate and loves you all with a love so great that he set all of it aside to become the way, the truth, and the life. In just a minute, we're going to celebrate communion together. If you don't know the love of our king that I spoke of, take this time to kind of sit and reflect, to think about this God that that steps into your world, into your life. If Jesus is your king, as you look up at Adonai sitting on the throne, right next to that throne, there's an old rugged cross. So we have a moment of silence. I would encourage you in this moment, just, just sit underneath his rule, sit underneath his reign, sit underneath his holiness and his glory that fills the earth. Sit underneath his love and his compassion and his care for you to run to you when life is uncertain, when people fail, when, when a leader has a moral compromise, when things happen around us that cause pain and uncertainty and challenge and struggle. Just sit. Sit underneath your king that doesn't have any of those things. Sit underneath his holy, holy, holiness on full display in the temple, the earth that was shaking. Feel, feel the train of his robe around you like a blanket. Right? And then when you come to take communion, right? the coal touched Isaiah's lips. So as the bread and the juice touch your lips, remember the message. Remember the message of the seraphim for Isaiah in that moment. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are both Yahweh and Adonai. Thank you that you that you are holy when we are not. That you are sovereign over every ruler, every leader, every person. 
that your holiness never fails. Your pursuit of your own holiness never fails like our pursuit of holiness does. Thank you that when, when we don't know what's next, thank you that you're sitting, that you aren't in a panic. Thank you that you, thank you that you bridged the gap, that you walked away from all of that to step into our world and to walk with us. And after taking our sin and our condemnation, you ascended back to rule and reign again as our advocate, as our priest, as our savior, as our father, as our friend. We thank you for the passages in Revelation that talk about the upcoming wedding feast where you're going to, to welcome your bride into your presence full of glory. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we can be reminded each and every, each and every week of your sacrifice as we share communion together. And that as, as we take it today, Lord, that we will hear the song of the seraphim ringing in our heads, holy, 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 and your sin is taken away. We pray in your holy name. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.